Oh, hello. Welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine, and today I was joined by James McNicholas, aka Gunnerblog, um, also of The Athletic, and I was joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Now, the content of today's podcast is all about Arsenal Football Club. It's called What's Going On at Arsenal, and we attempt to investigate what is going on at Arsenal, including things like recent backroom reshuffle. That makes it sound uh, political, doesn't it? But it's an election season, so, you know, I've got the fever. What else did we talk about? We talked about the uh, now infamous uh, Xhaka situation, which, you know, seems a shame for all involved. Um, Aubameyang as the captain, is he or isn't he the right choice? We also talked about, of course, Emery. Um, He's been there for 18 months now, you know, just about. Uh, long-term uh, plans, what was expected of him when he when he came in at the beginning, whether he's delivered or not, how it's very difficult to see what the philosophy is, apart from quite a lot of sort of tinkering with with various parts of the team. Um, we also touch uh, briefly on the owners towards the end and some of the higher uh, end structure stuff at the club. Um, I found it uh, very, very interesting. <coughs> I'm so sorry. I'm also a bit ill, so I'm coughing. Got a scratchy voice today. Um, I found it really interesting. I love James. He's great fun to talk to. Um, I hope you will enjoy listening to him. Um, he is now writing alongside Amy Lawrence and people like David Onstein for The Athletic, um, writing all about Arsenal. And uh, I, to be honest, I can't really think of a better Arsenal-based lineup anywhere else, nor any other team for that matter, nor any other uh, general group of football writers. We are brought to you by The Athletic. Um, you can uh, get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. It really, really is worth it. I couldn't emphasise that more. Eight pence per day, £2.50 a month uh, for the whole first year. What's that's the price of a coffee or it's, in fact, I bought a coffee the other day that cost me £3.60. So, you know, it's less than that if you live in a big city and you have an expensive taste in coffee. Incidentally, I didn't buy that for myself. I don't drink coffee. I don't need any caffeine. I'm already uh, too sort of on edge. I bought it for someone else. And I was, um, I was disappointed that it cost me that much money. <laughs> Anyway, that's all. Uh, I hope you really enjoy this episode. Um, whether you're an Arsenal supporter or not, you can uh, leave us a, a review for the podcast. That'd be really nice. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can leave us a lovely comment or a horrible one, whatever you like. Uh, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can rate the podcast. You can tweet at us. You can tweet at James at um, Gunnerblog. And, uh, you know, you can do all of those things. We love hearing from you. It's mostly very nice. Um, so thanks very much for your patience at the beginning here. And without further ado, I give you uh, James McNicholas and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Dankeschön. Can we start, James, with uh, Granite Xhaka being booed off against Crystal Palace? That seems like, uh, I mean, at the time, it was, a, it was a big event, wasn't it? And since then, the fallout has been something to discuss. At yeah. Least. Seismic. Can we say seismic? I feel like we can say seismic. It feels seismic within the Arsenal universe. Yes. Uh, it was one of the more bizarre things I've seen at Arsenal, but... Let's not forget, you know, this is the club where Emmanuel Labue was also booed off. We do have previous on this front. Um, but this one was uh, particularly remarkable, obviously, because of Shaka's reaction to it. Uh, 
Yeah, it was it was pretty extraordinary. I have to say, I was in the stands that day. I was in my season ticket, and I felt deeply uncomfortable. I did not really want to be there. And it's been interesting. A lot of the sort of post uh, discussion of it has been talking about you know Shaka and his behaviour and how wrong it was. And I think. I think everyone can sort of agree with that. It's not befitting behaviour of a captain of a football club. But I do also have a degree of sympathy with the players, given uh, the atmosphere that they're sometimes playing in at the Emirates Stadium. Mm. I mean, with Xhaka particularly, I'm, you know, I remember talking to Amy Lawrence about it at the time. Mm. I think she came in to record a podcast just a few days afterwards. And she said that, you know, he didn't play particularly well, but it, it, he, he didn't stand out as a terrible performer of, of that particular game. So the booing, I guess, is more legacy-based than anything. Absolutely, yeah. It's something that had been kind of building for a few weeks, maybe months even. Shaka had been brought off a couple of other times earlier in the season and there had been a bit of kind of ironic cheering or applause associated with that. And obviously that sticks in a player's mind. He remembers it and it becomes cumulative. So I think when it happened against Palace, especially after an average display, not a particularly bad performance, as you say, I think for him it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, mm. and, and that's why he really lost his rag. And a lot of the frustration with the player comes, I think, from from the coach, really, from Unai Emery, who, who made him captain and who picks him incredibly consistently or has done until this point. Uh, and I think the fans just felt that they didn't really understand why Shaka was so much Emery's guy. He became a bit of a symbol of things they didn't like about the team and about the management of the team. So what is the situation now with him not mm. being picked since? Well, the situation now is that he's in Switzerland on international duty, uh, making some interesting noises. I mean, he's done his first interview uh, with the Swiss press since since the whole incident. And to be honest, his stance hasn't massively shifted. I think the statement that he made that was reprinted in Arsenal's programme notes in which he kind of apologised but didn't apologise I think lost him what goodwill he had remaining with the majority of Arsenal fans and I think it's very difficult to foresee him being at the club I mean beyond January to be honest with you I, I'd be slightly surprised if he plays for the club again and I think that there's already talk about AC Milan Ivan Gazidis maybe wanting a reunion with Shaka. he always thought very highly of him when he was at Arsenal uh, and I think even perhaps a loan move is going to be a possibility come January. The problem there for Arsenal is Shaka was a valuable asset in the summer. There was talk of him going to Serie A for, I don't know, 40 million euros, something like that. They might be looking at a scenario now where they let him go on his loan or where his value is significantly diminished. Seb, can I ask you, do you I mean, you know, there's a lot of noise around, as James said, his kind of apology, non-apology thing. You have to be careful saying noise, Joe. We, yeah, we would say we don't use that word. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of discussion, let's say, around that point. Do you think uh, he should have had to apologise? Because, I mean, just as a neutral, I mean, I'm not an Arsenal supporter, but from a neutral perspective, I find it bizarre. I, I, I understand that, that supporters have, you know, a lot of loyalty to the club. They expect the players to as well. They they often, you know, players' salaries are kind of hung around their neck when it comes to this. And if they're earning this much, they need, you know, they people want the players to bleed for the club. I I just think it's ridiculous. So I'm not an Arsenal fan. I'm a Spurs fan. Um, and the only time is that going to impact your <laughs> discussion, it's today? probably going to impact the sort of the YouTube comments that appear underneath yeah, this sure. video. Um, the only time I've seen this in person was actually. Uh, 2007, I think, when Hossam Ghali came off um, at White Hot Lane uh, in a game against Blackburn and um, 
he'd actually he'd come on to he'd, he'd come into the game as a substitute and then was as substituted yeah uh, by Martin same as a boo right and he um he was walking off the pitch and he took off his shirt threw it at the at the manager and walked down the tunnel and the, there are no no's there are things that you do that are always going to draw a certain reaction one take the shirt off two any kind of gesture towards the fans now it doesn't really matter what the three of us as members of the public think of that that's just the reality that is how a lot of fans think um when i when i heard his when i read his his statement his non-apology apology mm. i had a great deal of sympathy for him because i think he's probably he was over promoted into the captaincy i think he believes he's a slightly better player than he really is however um there's this disease in modern fandom where people think it's perfectly okay to wish illness on someone's children mm. and harm to their wife. I, I just, I can't, I can't get my head around that. And I can't also, I can't relate to it because thankfully no one's ever subjected me to that kind of abuse and nobody they ever do. I think the modern player is expected to put up with an awful lot. Yeah. Like anytime they post anything on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, there's this, sh there's this just flow of, I mean, it's just gibberish. It's mm. nasty bile. Yeah. Um, and so I've got sympathy for him. It, it was like a, it was probably humiliating for him. What happened to Palace on top of um, a disappointing performance, obviously a bad result for, for Arsenal. Um, and there has to be a point in which people accept that these players are human and there is a release. And no, obviously looking back, it doesn't sort of bear any, um, any scrutiny. Um, and it's always going to be antagonistic. But I felt... I don't know what James thinks of this. I felt Arsenal could have dealt with it better. I know that's a bit of a way to comment coming from me. I felt like they were very quick to shunt him out of view, Emery especially. The way it was announced that he was losing the captaincy felt a little bit like, it felt a little bit like an appeasement of what had been some fairly nasty treatment. I, I didn't, it doesn't really sit well with me. It's, um, a, it's an interesting point and it took them quite a while to do it actually to officially announce that he'd yeah. been removed as captain just as it took him a really long time to appoint him in the first place and I think that speaks to a little bit of some of the indecision that surrounds Emery and the management of the club even the top brass uh, yeah and I think it was a divisive issue within the squad I know that you know Amy wrote a piece for The Athletic where talking about how players went round to his house that night to yeah. sort of talk to him console him I think in the week following that there were messages of support from people within the squad both to Shaka and to management figures at the club saying look we stand by this guy on the other side of the coin there are elements of the squad who were really unhappy with what Shaka did uh, there was a lot of frustration you know I think players had tried to console him on the pitch in the moment and in you know post that at training and he was a bit affronted and sort of in a very defensive place and so there's been a lot of division around it um, I think they felt they had to remove him as captain but they didn't do it with a great deal of authority they didn't do it with uh, as swiftly as I think a lot of fans would have liked and they didn't communicate it as well as they might have done and communication I think has been a bit of a, a problem at Arsenal recently did you find it weird that it came out in, in the way that it did and it wasn't really I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it never felt very official. That's the kind of situation yeah. which I would expect a, a club statement. Not a club statement in the kind of the, right, we're selling 40% to person X mm -hmm. sense, but just a, a proper official dispassionate clarification of what was going on. Yeah, so I think it was on the Sunday that we played Palace and it all kind of went down. And then the Thursday night was when Shaka put out his statement. 
Uh, come the Saturday morning, we had the programme notes with the, yeah. the captain's notes in there. And Arsenal just reprinted what Shaka had said on the Thursday. I know they were tight for time, but I think that was maybe slightly misguided and angered people yeah. even more. And then we didn't actually get a decision on the captaincy until kind of the middle of the following week, I think it was. So, yeah, I did find it odd and I felt like that was something where greater communication was required. I mean, Arsenal have a head of football in Raul Sanyei. They have a technical director in Edu. And I think these are kind of club matters that almost should go above the jurisdiction of the coach. I think that a direction and communication should have come down from the very, very top of the club, even perhaps the ownership. I know they don't want to necessarily be a mouthpiece Mm. for the club, but I just feel that, yeah, there wasn't really enough authority uh, given in the situation and it was sort of allowed to fester more than it should have done. Well, I want to come back to Sanyehi and Edu. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seven, I want to ask you about uh, the way that their relationship breaks down and whose responsibility is what. But on the point about uh, new captaincy, it's uh, Obama Yang. What do you think of that decision? Well, I mean, I actually was a proponent of, of making Obama Yang captain, uh, but pre Shaka, just because there was so much dissent among the fan base about the appointment of Shaka. I think people felt that by giving him the armband, you're effectively making him a guaranteed starter. And for lots of different reasons, uh, people don't want that. I I think that Aubameyang is not a conventional leader, you'd have to say. But I also think when you look at this Arsenal squad, you know, there is a distressing lack of of options. I think uh, there are five captains there, but I wouldn't necessarily call any of them obvious captain material. Mm. I mean, I was going to ask James, maybe I'm missing something, but it it seems strange that Hector Bellerin isn't isn't Arsenal captain. I, I, I understand... Um, that he's still quite a young player, mm. that his future isn't um, absolutely guaranteed. He's, he's very sexy. But what he's, he's, there's a lot of qualities that make, I know, look, good hair, he's got great, great hair, hair, good fashion sense. I know we, we, we exaggerate the importance of Kansi in this country and we're a little bit um, antiquated in our perception of, you mm-hmm. know, it, everyone, every captain's going to look like Brian Robson, essentially, yeah. Terry Butcher. Um, but Bellerin, I, from the outside, it seems he is the one unifying player, maybe with Aubameyang as the exception, um, but someone who he even, even non-Arsenal fans Arsenal, seem he? to have a lot of time for. People yeah. think this is an urbane, socially aware young man, and yeah. that's kind of who you'd want as your captain. I don't know, maybe... No, you're absolutely like, right. I mean, as, a, as footballers go, he seems like a really does, great guy. Yeah. Uh, and I think he is sort of emblematic of, of the modern Arsenal and the, the, the supposed values I suppose we would like the club to embody you know he carries those I think with him this season there was a slight sense that it might be slightly too, too soon for him especially coming off the back of this long term injury mm. I mean he just started his first Premier League game mm. uh, I don't expect him to be starting week in week out he looked rusty still and I think they need to be careful with him in case of recurrences or muscle problems so I wonder if that maybe contributed to it. I also think Aubameyang is an incredibly influential player within the group. I mean, he is essentially Arsenal's key player. Without him, God knows where they'd be this season. So, you know, he is someone who is going to play absolutely every single game, who is probably the highest profile player at the club. And who knows? I mean, it's something Arsenal have tried in the past, giving someone the captain's armband to try and keep them there. I mean, it hasn't worked out for them, let's be clear. <laughs> you look at Cesc Fabregas, Robin Van Persie. So there's been the curse of the captain's armband at Arsenal. But, maybe you, know, you don't want it to go to a band. Well, maybe <laughs> not, maybe not. But I think, you know, given that contract talks are, well, happening almost imminently, you would think they desperately need to, um, that maybe that was a factor in just sort of trying to make him feel part of the group so will you walk me through the situation with his Instagram post right so <laughs> on Monday um, uh, 
David Ornstein's um, athletic column um, made reference to sources within the club who weren't best pleased with Aubameyang's relationship with Arsenal Fan TV, or AFTV as it's now known. What is the relationship? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but it seems that he sort of, uh, he exchanges uh, social media pleasantries with, I can't remember which one of the cast it is. It's, but uh, tr- it's troops. Right, troops okay. with him. Um, and and troops, I think, had been in his box. Yeah, like, that's the, uh, yeah. according to the column. And, uh, and obviously, given the reputation that AFTV has, amongst some internet users. Um, club didn't really like that because it presents a certain image of the Arsenal fan. It's like, a, in my opinion, my opinion, it, it, it caricatures the Arsenal fan. It creates a sort of... Well, it legitimises that uh, well, I, perspective. I, I, I think it's, it, it gives opposition fan bases a, an enormous stick with which to beat the club. Right. Um, and as an opposition fan, I can confirm that, yeah, that's that becomes the right. identity of the football club. So... Um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang went on uh, international duty, landed in Gabon, um, read possibly the article, but got wind of this sort of suggested um, dissatisfaction and put out an Instagram post, Instagram story saying, I'll speak to who I want. Not great. You kind of, maybe Arsenal could have benefited from a little bit of silence from on that topic. You know, just a little bit of, um, a different way of dealing with it that suggests that perhaps he, he wasn't a, maybe either he wasn't aware of that before reading about it or, or hearing about it I, I, or that he wasn't expecting to to see that in, in the well, public well I mean the, f- the first thing to say is it's important he was typing speaking in a second language so you know you can't discount the um, the, the possibility of uh, something being lost in translation or or of a bit of Chinese whispers if, if he's been on a plane it's possible that someone's called him and said right they're saying this, we, mm. you know. So I think you're supposed to call that telephone now. I think, I think Chinese whispers is a very outdated term. So. Chinese whispers down the telephone, though. Well, so okay. I, no, I mean, I, I think okay, Arsenal. Sure. I think the point is, is that um, it's called telephone. Given that, every, yeah, <laughs> it's not called Chinese. This whispers. is excellent podcast it's called, content. It's called telephone. <laughs> just, really saying, good. just saying, it's called telephone. That's I, all. I've told you about Please leaving this outside the pod. No, before. go on. Your racial tirade. Um, carry on. So. Uh, <laughs> I think Arsenal's captaincy situation should have been a platitude and cliche zone for a while just to take the heat out of it. And as a result of this, rightly or wrongly, it's now an issue again. And all the people that said things like, he's your captain, but don't you remember what happened to Borussia Dortmund? People like that. What did happen to Borussia Dortmund? Well, the way he left the club was uh, very acrimonious. Um, he had a big falling out um, with the, the the club's executive structure. About, right. Um, yeah, I, I think he was promised to move at some point. He didn't get it. Um, he's fond of uh, making fairly disparaging remarks about the club's chief executive on social media still. Um, and he had a, he was disciplined a few times for failing to turn up to training. So it's nothing remarkable, but it's sort of, yeah, it's a little bit of a red flag. Um, and so when people like that mention these things, whether they're relevant or not, when an Instagram post like that comes out, all of a sudden you give them a little bit more credibility because saying, well, that's not, you know, in a in a PR-sensitive football environment, that's not the smartest move. It adds to the suggestion of discordance behind the scenes, doesn't it, Jen? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not becoming a subset of an Arsenal captain. I think, though, that, you know, it's the first sign of anything like that that we've seen at Arsenal from yeah. Aubameyang. We have to say, and, you know, you, you kind of, 
you go on what you see of someone at close hand. And I think things did go on at Dortmund in his final few weeks and it was pretty ugly at times. But... That can happen in moves. That it's happen. always two-sided, that situation. Exactly. Yeah, people always portray the player as the villain, but you don't know what he was promised, what he was reacting to. So it's it's best to you know to um, to, to stand off that a little bit. And, and what I would say is Sven Mislintat, who had identified Aubameyang for Dortmund and brought him to Arsenal, he had no hesitation whatsoever about bringing Aubameyang into the group. And he had actually campaigned in the past for Aubameyang to be made captain at Dortmund in a previous uh, era. So mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, you talk about Aubameyang, he is, he is a fantastic team player for a goal scorer. He's incredibly selfless. The job he's doing for Arsenal at the moment, I mean, at Leicester, he was sort of playing as an auxiliary left back at times. Uh, he's had three shots in three games. He's got no service whatsoever, but he's still giving his all. If there's a bit of frustration from the Arsenal strikers at the moment. I can kind of understand it, given the service that they're getting. In the case of the troops and the AFTV thing, I think part of the issue is that he's been seen to be liking posts on social yeah. media that yeah. were sort of uh, dissent against the, the coach, if we put <laughs> right. it like that, you know. Okay. Uh, which had a strong hashtag Emery out vibe to them. Okay. Uh, and that, you know, can obviously prove controversial. It's always difficult with these things. You never know to what extent individuals are managing their social media or yeah. not. Um, judging by his post, his Instagram story from Gabon, he is, uh, if not managing it, at least, you know, active on it. Well, he's also, I mean, I, I haven't, um, one of the things I that, that stay with me when you cover games is which players stop in a mix zone after a, a bad result. Mm. Um, and he is like I, the last away game I did for Arsenal was Watford, right? Which was a terrible day yeah. uh, for the club. And you look at the players going through. So you have all of the English players, without exception, walk through with faces like smacked asses, mm-hmm. like just sulking, headphones in, not talking, not stopping, not recognized, not you know, sort of not. Um, you know, not giving a second thought to the press, which is fine. Xhaka uh, too, you know, in a bit of a strop. Um, Aubameyang, Socrates, Ben Leno, it stopped for a long time, spoke to English and foreign press, um, and they're very eloquent. Mm. And he is too, he's a really intelligent guy. Mm. So it's kind of, you when you when you see something like, when, when James talks about certain posts being liked with a, a an Emery out undertone or overtone to them, you think you're not misunderstanding that situation because you are bright enough like you're not there are there are football players in the Premier League you think you just you know you, mm. you don't know what you're doing he's not one of those no. um, so it's kind of it doesn't look very good regardless really what the um, of what the reality actually is alright well look it seems sensible to move on to Emery now mm. yeah. from what I understand from David Ornstein's recent article on The Athletic uh, the club has given Emery their backing to continue at least until the end of the season is that accurate? Certainly, they're not making any noises about an immediate replacement or removing Emery. Um, whether or not he lasts till the end of the season, I think really will depend on results. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but Arsenal mm. have got you know a very difficult period coming up over Christmas where they face both Manchester clubs. They face, uh, I think it's Chelsea. They have trips to Everton, Bournemouth within the space of about three or four weeks. I do think if Emery struggles in those games, I think it will be difficult uh, for him to survive that. The only thing I would say is that when you look at the numbers, the amount of points Arsenal have now, how it's their worst league start since 1982, I believe, it's possible the club will look at this and saying, 
top four might be out of reach. I mean, nine points is the gap between Arsenal and Leicester at this stage. Chelsea are there too. Uh, I don't think it's a given even that Arsenal will finish, you know, top five or six, given the way they're playing right now. So it's possible that they're looking at it and going, well, actually, we could bring in a new guy, but maybe it's not going to make that much difference to our league positioning. Our best bet of making the Champions League is actually the Europa League. We've got a coach who has won it three times and got to another final. We might just gamble on that. It's, it's not what I would do, but I do wonder if that might be in their thinking. James, do you think part of it is that if they get to the summer and then they make a decision, their range of choice for who comes next is far broader? I mean, I, 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 I've heard the names attached to, to, yeah. to, to Arsenal. None of them really convinced me. Like, I, I understand the logic behind, you know, poisoning the whole thing with a Mourinho. Sure. I, I get that as a reaction, but really, he's not going to take that job because that's not the way he works he needs the money all the time he needs a you know an apex predator budget basically yeah is there anyone there out there that you would if 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 you if emery was to go this afternoon allegri yeah i mean but the thing about allegri is that sort of i feel like allegri becomes almost a a um an impulsive choice a reflexive choice on the basis of what happened at juventus and you know juventus enjoy a, a, a tremendous primacy in Serie A which Arsenal don't. So it's kind of, I don't see the... Nagelsmann? But he's he's only been at Leipzig for four months. No, I know, but in the case that they were to wait until the end of the season. I guess, but I mean, whether that's actually doable. I mean... Let's talk about Bayern Munich. That's uh, Bayern Munich seem to have had their eye on Nagelsmann for for years. That's their long-term plan. As far as I know, I stand to be corrected. Um, I I don't know who's out there that suits Arsenal, that's all. Wenger's available. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it is interesting. I do think that a lot of this kind of... Um, I would love that so much. That I, too, really, I really too. wish I miss Fenger. for the neutral. I miss Fenger as no, well. No, I miss... I, I, not, not as, I not love a, that guy. He, he was so dignified. Mm. He was such a, a statesman of the game. Now that he's left Arsenal, I can say that. Yeah. He was such a, an admirable person in a lot of ways. The way he handled himself, the way he spoke. I listened to Wenger speak all day. Yeah. He was great. Absolutely great. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, one of the most excited I've been as an Arsenal fan this season is when Wenger was being really closely linked with the Bayern Munich job. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I would have absolutely loved to see that come to pass. Obviously wins the Champions League if he takes that job. Yeah. Without question. That's <laughs> just how football works. It is destiny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think all Arsenal fans actually miss Wenger probably more than they realise. Now, I, I probably will get stick for saying this, but there you go. I think that everything that's going on with Emery is uh, a reaction to kind of mourning of, of Wenger and Wenger Ball and who he was as a man, as a communicator. You know, in a lot of ways, Emery represents a kind of anti-Wenger. He's not yeah, particularly yeah. eloquent. His football is a lot less imaginative, creative, attacking, free-flowing. His identity is not clear. No, that is that is very true. It's not as if he has a strong sort of defensive identity either. But in theory, you know, when Wenger was at the club, a lot of Arsenal fans spoke about how Arsenal didn't necessarily respect their opponent or didn't prepare... To, for, to each individual game or didn't alter their tactics I mean Emery he does do those things I just think that Arsenal fans maybe uh, uh, I've got to be careful with this but I feel like maybe you don't quite realise what you're going to miss about somebody until they're no longer there mm-hmm. and when you talk about which manager might come next I do actually think that there would be a bit of a shift back towards someone who has more of those Wengerish qualities and even you talk about 
people who've played under him. There's a strong degree of support for uh, Freddie Jumberg, who's yeah. on the coaching staff. Mikel Arteta is another name mentioned. Even someone like Patrick Vieira, you know, you see that name bandied around. And I think there is a bit of a, a nostalgia element there and a shift back to what people can identify with as feeling sort of quintessentially Arsenal. And when it's they mean Solstice that... It's syndrome. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I was going to say, do you feel yeah. that there's a sort of mirror to what's happened at Manchester United in that regard with the, with the long-held uh, yeah. uh, coach position, various issues moving on beyond that, and then looking to kind of hold on to something that once was well, afterwards? You're yeah. absolutely right. That, that Vieira thing is a classic example of it. It's like, right, you haven't watched Nice this season. Mm, Have mm. a look at the table in yeah. France. See, see what's going on there. Yeah, It's a kind of... James, James mentioned something really interesting about the kind of the, the reaction to Wenger and it going the wrong way. I think it's kind of, it's inevitable, wasn't it? Because it became this, became this binary issue over time where you had to be pro or against. You had to have a really strong opinion either side of that line. And it, it went on for such a long time that almost, I think all the nuance within that discussion died a decade before it actually mm. came to pass. So it's, it was, I don't know. It was, it was never really happened with Ferguson, did it? There, 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 there was umming and ahhing about it in the, in the yeah, final because years because the, the differences between the ways the that results. careers in, at the clubs ended and yeah. you know obviously Wenger's career in England had this you know fairly fallow second act whereas yeah. Ferguson was he left at a point where nobody's opinion about him had dimmed his reputation was as strong as ever yeah. arguably at its absolute apex because of of the longevity attached to it I, and that achievement in the final season with that squad with that squad yeah. with that squad yeah. which is just yeah it shouldn't that, that squad shouldn't even finished in the in the top six arguably can I uh, can I put to you uh, when I had Amy Lawrence here a couple of weeks ago her criticism of Emery was that it was not clear to her uh, after all of this time what he was attempting to do mm. whether that was good or bad she wasn't clear and obviously there's you know I sort of wish we had uh, Alex here who might be able to talk to talk to explain to me the tactics slightly better. But uh, I understand the idea of, of uh, tweaking aspects of the strategy going into a game, and that can, that's a good thing. But if it's not really clear what the overall strategy is after eighteen months or so, that's not great, is it? No, I mean, in its most simplistic terms, this is a team that never looks like... Arsene Wenger, actually, to refer back to him, used to talk about this idea of automatisms, that, you know, when you were on the field, you kind of had an instinctive understanding of where your teammates were, what run they might make, and from that you get something like flow right. in a team. That has never been established under Unai Emery at Arsenal, apart from maybe a very brief period last season where there was a bit more consistency in selection. You know, he does... We look for his philosophy, but his philosophy is that he is inherently a mechanic, someone who constantly tweaks and changes his team. And he was sort of put in a bit of a tactical straitjacket at PSG because the players did not want to play his variations. They wanted to play the 4-3-3 that Laurent Blanc had established, and they kind of had to stick with that. When he came to Arsenal, he very firmly was like, well... This time I'm in charge and I'm going to play with this team as much as I want. If you go on his Twitter profile, it's fascinating. There's a, his header image on his Twitter profile is a picture of Unai Emery holding a football. And then behind him, there's a board with all these sort of scientific equations on it. <laughs> it honestly, like E equals MC squared and all that sort of stuff. And he envisions himself as this sort of football mad scientist, you know. Yeah. But what has resulted from that is that Arsenal has become sort of, a, 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 they feel like a perpetual experiment, you know. Well, where, presumably within that as well, that's that's all fine and dandy, but you need the players to ha have respect for you and trust in your, your decision making. And once you get to the stage where, as we're hearing, if there's a little bit of unrest within the camp, mm. if they don't trust you, then those constant tweaks aren't going to be upheld. Or then, you know, you're not going to... 
and it's a question of effort every single time, but you, you see the point I'm making. Right? Yeah, and results are king. If you know Emery was winning all the time, then I think yeah. people would buy into that idea. But since the spring, he's had a terrible, terrible run. Uh, and I know even in our good run in the first half of last season, the underlying metrics suggested this was all going to come home to roost to a, at a certain point. I think there was a reset point in the summer. Um, you know, there was a bit of a stay of execution for Unai because he, he really messed up the bid for top four with a terrible run in the Premier League. There wasn't a great deal of judgment around that because we had this sort of caveat of the Europa League final, which was like, well, you know, let's not let's not judge Emery yet. He might yet get us back into the Champions League by winning that. He lost that final 4-1. I think then there was a bit of a sort of outpouring of frustration. But then the transfer activity the club embarked upon in the summer... I think did re-inject some hope really I think it was pretty positive in the transfer window and, and people were prepared to say well look Emery's now got the winger or wide forward that he's been crying out for in Pepe you know he's got a squad that maybe is better suited to what we want to do there's a, an injection of youth there and I think the problem for Emery is that this season actually it's kind of gone from bad to worse rather than the inverse of that What were the expectations when, when he was brought on as a coach? What, I mean, what were Arsenal hoping for him to, to achieve at the club? Uh, I think that's a really good question because I think everyone was aware post-Wenger there would be a sort of element of transition there. You know, I think people's patience at the time, it's very easy when Wenger is sort of still in to say, oh, when the new man comes, you know, he can have two or three years and if it's needed, we'll all be patient, yeah. we'll all, you know, put up with that. And of course it doesn't play out like that. But I think maybe it might if people believed in the destination, if they thought, I can see where we're going here. We're not there yet, but I can see the intention. I mean, you can't help but cast slightly envious glances at, at Chelsea, say. I mean, I know they're playing better football than Arsenal at the moment, but there is a clear identity already and a bit of a plan. And even though it's sort of anathema to what Chelsea have done for the last 15 years, their fans are able to get on board with it. I also just think it wasn't realistic for Arsenal fans to suddenly be patient with Emery, having been so frustrated with Arsene Wenger for so long. I mean, I almost think that those Wenger out years kind of shifted the entire nature of the fan base really to one of sort of um, frustration and impatience and uh, sort of distrust fundamentally of the club and the coach. And that can't just go away. You know, I think I would, I hoped that the, Wenger going and Emery coming in would sort of lance that boil and kind of change the entire atmosphere around the club but that stuff doesn't go away and it's telling how quickly it all resurfaces when things start to go wrong I tell you what we'll come back to Emery then because on that point I would like to ask you Seb to explain to me what the club's comment around noise was <laughs> it's a hospital past that isn't it Joe? <laughs> um so, and James, jump in if you need to correct me here. Um, <laughs> Please yeah. do help, James. Yeah, don't, don't hesitate. Okay. Um, so, um, obviously, there's been mounting pressure and mounting supported dissatisfaction with Emery. Club, I think, released, was it initially a statement? Um, no, it or was, was it a leak? It was a, 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 I suppose you'd call it a briefing, really. Right, okay. Um, you know, I think... David Ornstein at The Athletic ran the story the day after the Leicester game uh, saying, you know, Arsenal 100% back Emery, essentially. And there was a, a quote and a reference to this being sort of in spite of the, the noise surrounding the club. Um, and whatever their intentions were there, it was not well received by the Arsenal fans. I think this kind of feeds into what we spoke about earlier. This kind of this, the false perception that's been created that 
Arsenal's entire fan base is made up of people who are either cast members of Arsenal Fan TV or Piers Morgan. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Or sending death threats to Granite Shack. Or that. Which is, you know, and you could argue maybe there are some same people in that, but it's that kind of personality, that hysterical, uh, performative outrage type person. And that has become... A little bit of inauthenticity as well. A little bit of reaction for the sake of reaction. And kind of, I guess what they were trying to target is this this sense that, uh, you know, we, 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 we can see... um, we can see the situation clearly. We are not going to react in a in an impulsive, emotional way to mm. something on the basis of what a couple of people on the internet are saying, which is actually, remove it from its context, it's a very fair thing to say. It's yeah. just, it's not very self-aware, it's not very smart, and you are, you run the risk of offending a very large percentage of your of your supporter base. Yeah, are you not specifically offending the people uh, who are making the kind of sensationalist noise no because though. you're tiring everyone with the same brush really really I th- I, I, that's how I would feel if yeah. it, it's my honest reaction to it is that I am incredibly thankful that there is no equivalent within the Tottenham fan base there is no Morgan there is no Tottenham fan well, TV uh, there was but we, haven't you got Alan Sugar yeah but he's he's Come on. he's not nearly as ubiquitous as Morgan it's like, quite annoying though isn't yeah, it yeah but Alan Sugar is not presenting you know a, a daytime TV programme five days a week he's not he's a he's more of a joke Morgan is more malignant in my opinion um, I, I would yeah I would agree actually I'm um, no massive fan of Alan Sugar but no I don't think anyone is I don't think you're going to find many Tottenham fans that, that sort of <laughs> do you think there are any massive fans Alan of Alan Sugar <laughs> I don't know the apprentice seem to really like he's still working on the Amstrad computers and you know the, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I just my point being is that if that was me in that situation and Daniel Levy released or briefed a, a journalist about the noise in our fan base that would irritate me that would not that would not um, quell my irritation with an underperforming manager. And, and that is what happened. I mean, I think the club are keen to stress at this point that by noise, they meant as much sort of the media and everything else that surrounds yeah. Arsenal <clears throat> as the fans. The fans obviously took it to mean the supporters and really took that to heart. And it did turn out to be a very inflammatory comment and a bit of a storm for Arsenal to have to deal with. Um, but I sort of agree with Seb in that I am an Arsenal fan, but I don't want my club to react emotionally. I don't want them to be led by what the fans think they should do. I think, you know, we touched on people like Edu, Rausanyehi and other executives at the club. I think they know better than me how to run a football club. And, you know, I think to a certain degree as a supporter, you're constantly putting your trust in people. You're putting your trust in the players, you're putting your trust in a manager and you're putting your trust in executives too. So I think, you know, I understand the emotion and I think the supporters have a point with Emery. I mean, the numbers back it up. The facts are there. He's not doing a good job. But I I don't have a huge issue with the club saying, look, we want to make a rational decision here. And it may be that, as we've alluded to, they think if we replace Emery now, we won't do as good a job as we might do at the end of the season. Mm. And if you look at Manchester United, I think one of the stories is, is there is sort of not getting necessarily the right guy. It's all about getting the right appointment. That has to be the priority at this point. 
There's an interesting, there's a kind of balance between the two, isn't there? Appe- appeasing fans and not mm. going out of your way to do so. And it reminds me of watching Question Time at the moment. For overseas listeners, Question Time <laughs> is, a, uh, is a political uh, programme on BBC One, uh, hosted by a broadcast journalist, and there'll be a panel of either politicians or academics or the, the odd famous comedian or something will be on there. And an audience who ask questions about the week's politics. But it's become recently an opportunity for audience members to just shout horrible things at all of the panel. Mm. You're, you're all shit at your jobs. You don't know what you're doing. Fuck off and die, basically, over and over and over again in different guises. Then they get clapped by everyone, even though they've said nothing of any value. Do you know my and favorite part the, of question The panel have to just sort of accept it and sit there and pretend that it's that it's all fine. What's your favorite so part of question? So whenever, whenever someone launches into a, like a big monologue, and, and thinking, God, I'm, I'm going to earn such a round of applause here. Mm. And then you get this kind of tepid, derail. you know, almost snooker hall type. Mm. Yeah. There was yeah, a fantastic one. That that the is, other day. That, everything else about Question Time is, is, uh, is horrendous. There was but a great one the other day where a guy, a guy was getting applause as he was going on and he was, he was growing in confidence about what he was saying. It was fairly <laughs> common sense. And then he got to the end and said something like, I don't know why they don't, we don't just reunify the island of Ireland. Oh, yeah, and yeah. everyone went, oh, uh, yeah, ooh, yeah. let's. Can we take back a, but yeah. the point I'm making is that there is a there's a balance between allowing the public to question politicians because they are their representatives and not just screaming yeah. at people for no reason. If there's one thing we've learned in this country, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that something that's not really talked about enough is that I think this is bigger than Arsenal and almost bigger than football. I think that fan culture across almost everything is dramatically changing. Yeah, and I always use yeah. the example of like I don't know a Game of Thrones or a Star Wars like people don't engage with that in the way sort of that they used to it's that they've got it wrong you know mm, they want yeah. it to end differently or yeah, they want yeah. this to happen or that to happen the way that my we my opinion matters it, yeah essentially the way we engage with stuff as fans is culturally dramatically different mm. to what it used to be and, and you see that applied in football you know we all sort of think that we know best and our opinion matters and the club should listen. And, and your football manager save justifies that. Yeah, exactly. I've got the proof. Look at my football manager save. Look at my FIFA team. Mm. Yeah, but for a lot of people, James, absolutely right. For a lot of people, the vast majority of, of fans of any club are not season ticket holders. Mm. For them, there are more similarities between really, really liking a television show and sporting football club because yeah. you tune in, you want the result that you get, uh, that, that, you, that you want. And if you don't get it, you kick off on Twitter about it. I mean, that's a fairly uncomfortable reality if you're a traditionist or if you're a slightly older fan, if you're older than 30, I guess. But um, that is seemingly how it is now. And, and, and you say, like things like f- tools like Football Manager, um, FIFA, they give the, they create this illusion that everyone can go and do it. Mm. And James made another good point about you have to place your trust in people because they are better at it than you would be. And that, I think, has been a little bit lost in the modern era. Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, I, as all Arsenal fans probably are doing right now, I keep harking back to Arsene Wenger, and one of his big themes was the idea that trust in expertise is sort of increasingly absent yeah. in society, and I do think we see that in football. I mean, one thing I wanted to almost ask you guys, really, that I've been struck by is that whilst there is all this dissent and this anger around Arsenal and, and their management and their performances, Tottenham and Manchester United, two rival clubs, are having arguably more difficult seasons. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see it happening on anything like the same scale. Is that fair or is that just because I'm not really part of that community? 
It's probably a little bit of both, I would expect. Right. I mean, I'm not. you're a part of the Tottenham community, I suppose. I'm not really a part of either community, but I would imagine, given the similarities between the Arsenal and Manchester United situation, United are a few years ahead. Yeah. They are concretely shit now. There are, the expectations, I think, are much lower, and we're you know they're deep into a kind of a nostalgia pattern with uh, Ole Gunnar mm. Solskjaer at the moment. Also, the effect... Uh, that we've seen, as I said, of, of being a few years ahead is that the, the fans, particularly overseas fans, I mean, um, I've forgotten, Daniel Taylor wrote a piece on The Athletic recently which we adapted into a, into a video oh, about, about the, fans in Asia. Yeah, the, yeah, kind of the battle really between good. Liverpool and Man United for mm. fans in Asia and um, and there was a, a particular discussion with a few fans from out there who were saying, yeah, no one supports Man United anymore. Everyone supports Liverpool. So I think, you know, sections of the fan base have kind of just broken off and left yeah. as well um, what do you think about Spurs in that regard I mean I, I would I would diagnose the situation at Spurs but within the fans it's more of a sadness at the moment rather than an anger because right. it's kind of they're only a few months off a Champions League final which they lost but it was still for a lot of people it was the high point of their supporter lifetime um, also there's a little there isn't a clarity of what's gone wrong there are theories and there are um there are sort of fingers being pointed at Daniel Levy, at certain players, at Pochettino. But I think because it's all so vague, you don't have one uniform reaction to it. And so mm. you just have a quiet, oh, well, this is just shit now. That's the mentality. Um, and so until it becomes a visceral anger, um, which obviously because of the protracted end of Wenger, became a very established trope at Arsenal. We yeah. don't have that yet. I mean, mm. I agree with you. I think, I think Spurs have been far worse this season than Arsenal. Um, can, I, can I interject as well and say what I think is interesting about the, the perception of the Arsenal supporters? Last week on the podcast, we had Michael Bailey, also from The Athletic, who writes about Norwich. And he, he almost grimaced when I described my perception of Norwich's fan base, which is that they're all very nice and happy mm -hmm. and that they don't care when they go down. I think they, they find that kind of annoying as well. It strikes me that maybe it's they are the... It's quite patronising. Uh, the, uh, the I know you don't mean it to uh, be. No, no, of course. But, I mean, but it, it, it's quite sort of, I, I feel like that's... It's just nice to be here. That, that is, it's the day tripper kind of, yeah. oh, we'll, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll, we'll sort of, we'll, we'll buy, you know, little souvenirs from every town we go to because that's who we are. We're little people from yeah. um, provincial town X and Y. Well, you're, you're really, Ooh, you're really knuckling it down there, yeah. you little people. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I feel like that caricature is, is rolled out every 12 months for it's some just, Yeah, it's just been rolled yeah, out. I went into character there, what um, can I say? <laughs> <laughs> We've been mentioning The Athletic a lot and it's at this point I would like to say that uh, you can get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription which I believe is 8p a day which is, you know, pretty good value uh, to, for The Athletic by visiting www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO um, and Seb, I know that you wanted to bring up one of James's articles from this week which will be last week when you're listening because we're recording this a week behind. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, we were we were talking before we started recording, and we've actually touched on it, but we, we were speaking about the the, the noise comment, mm. um, which was in James's article, and the kind of the the idea that sort of, um, again, uh, involved in that irritation with um, Aubameyang's relationship with, with AFTV was mm. this sort of, this perception that there are all these links, and there's always, there's always sort of, um, misdiagnoses of what an Arsenal fan actually is. Right. It's a really interesting article. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to throw you that hospital pass now. Yeah, I think it is, an, I think it is an interesting subject because, you know, it, it is a bit of a misdiagnosis. I think, you know, what with Granite Xhaka, for example? You know, he kind of lost his rag with 60,000 fans in the Emirates Stadium. 
But a very, very, very small proportion of those fans will have been the ones who have been sending him abuse. And I think that obviously that's the stuff that makes headlines or, you know, drives views on YouTube. Like the, the, the more angry elements of the fan base, the more extreme elements are the ones that sometimes reverberate loudest. But I don't think that is your average Arsenal fan. And I think what's unfortunate really is that it seems now with this comment about noise, almost as if the, the club are characterising their own fans in this way. And as long as they do that, I think the club's always going to have that sort of slight lack of harmony, really, because, Mm. you know, when the fans say, we're not that sure about the manager at the moment, the the club's response is to go, well, you are inherently reactionary, Um, which I can kind of understand how they might arrive at that judgment, especially the staff who were there for the latter years of the the Wenger era. But that doesn't represent the views of everybody. There is a, a kind of silent majority who are reasonable, who are rational, and it's perfectly valid to have concerns and express them in a way that isn't abusive and that is just what most fans do do you know what it sounds a little bit like um, it sounds similar to a, a long term relationship which has gone slightly toxic uh, when two people start reacting to each other's irrationalities yeah. rather than the 90% that's you know that's still a good person yeah. I'm still a good person is would you turn a, the air con off yeah. me Seb because it's just started making loads of noise again uh, but anyway I think there is an element of truth in that or you know almost like a political situation where you almost have to like wait for the next electorate to come of age yeah. and then things can shift it's right. sort of there is a lot of um Yeah, there's a lot of trauma in that relationship between club and fans. And sadly, it's led to the situation where sort of they just don't see eye to eye. Yeah. Uh, But if you want to read that piece or indeed uh, David Ornstein's pieces this week or indeed Amy Lawrence's pieces this Mm -hmm. week. Or actually, also stuff on The Athletic's very good. It's very good. They've done well. Yes. Yes. Uh, so if you haven't signed up already, do visit www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. 30-day free trial, 50% off, an annual subscription. This is an Quick pause in today's episode uh, for me to tell you about Football Index. Now, Football Index is the stock market for buying shares in footballers. Buy shares in players you think will perform, and if you know your football, their value will rise, and you can sell, or you can even win payouts when they score an assist or when they perform in the media. So if you've been watching a TIFO football video, I'll hark back to a very successful one of about a year or two, I might even two years ago, where uh, we said at the beginning of Mo Salah's um, uh, first brilliant season with Liverpool that he was going to score a lot of goals. I would imagine that had you bought shares in him before that happened and sold them after that happened, you would have made some cash. Yeah. So uh, go to footballindux.co.uk or download the app. Use the code TIFO on sign up. Get the £500 money back guarantee. Um, start trading in something you love today with Football Index. Terms and conditions do apply and it's 18 plus and please do gamble responsibly. Also today, we are delighted to be brought to you by ExpressVPN. In the internet's age, it's easy to feel like you have all the freedom in the world. The truth, however... The horrible truth is that we've never been more monitored by governments, ISPs, that's internet service providers, and ad companies. In fact, all UK internet service providers like BT or Sky have to keep records of your online activity for 12 months. This includes all the websites that you visit, apps you use, and your private conversations. It doesn't matter if you're suspected of a crime or not. The government can look into you without a warrant. That's why I protect my online privacy with ExpressVPN. 
whether you are at home or public Wi-Fi, ISPs are recording the internet activity. You don't want them snooping. Who cares a shit if you've got anything to hide or not? It doesn't matter. It's for you. ExpressVPN is very easy to use. You can download the app on your computer. You're also on your phone. You just click connect and voila, you are protected. Um, you can use the internet just like you normally would, but with ExpressVPN, your data is encrypted and your IP address is masked. So people can't just gather your data all the time. So protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash TIFO. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com forward slash TIFO for three months free with a one year package. Anyway, back to the episode. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to listen. James, can you explain to me the uh, breakdown of uh, duties between Sanyehi and Edu, please? It's an interesting one, uh, Sanyehi and Edu, because... So Sanyehi was originally brought in as the head of football relations by Ivan Gazidis, who was chief executive at the time. Uh, and Arsenal had kind of uh, identified that they would have a technical director. And a lot of people assumed that Sanyehi was sort of the technical director in waiting, that once Arsene Wenger went, because he had objections about working with someone in that role, he would just step sideways into that. On the other side of the coin, you had uh, Sven Mislintat, who was head of recruitment. <clears throat> and actually what happened, that he had sort of been promised by Gazidis, you will be the technical director. In the post-Wenger era, you will sort of head up that side of the club. Uh, when Ivan Gazidis left for AC Milan, uh, Rousen, he stepped up to become head of football and he had different ideas. They wanted to get Monchi, who'd worked with uh, uh, Emery at Sevilla. They didn't. He went back to Sevilla. And so Edu was brought in from the Brazilian national team. And as yet, he has sort of spent his first six months kind of getting his feet under the table. I mean, his job with the Brazilian national team was very different to this. It was sort of a a role, sort of organ, it was almost administrative role. He was kind of uh, Brazil's Oliver Bierhoff. Exactly yeah. that, exactly that. He has done this job with Corinthians in the past, uh, where he worked with TJ, who was also a Brazilian coach. But, you know, coming back to English football, it's quite a big shift for him. And I think we're only f- just starting to see his influence uh, taking shape. For example, you probably saw the headlines about Steve Morrow, a, a number of... Uh, analysts and coaches on the academy side were let go recently as part of sort of streamlining the recruitment aspects of the club so well they'd but in the summer edu was there and he was on the on the american tour and he was part of things but actually rousenier he was driving a lot of the transfer business you know he it was his contacts that helped secure for example william saliba from saint etienne because he's on very good terms with their president things like that so now i think the theory is that Edu would work very directly with the first team and the academy, almost bridging those two, really, uh, helping build development paths for players, uh, helping on recruitment, so identifying whether or not Arsenal need to make a signing in a position or whether or not there's someone coming through Per Mertesacker's academy who might be well-suited to that role, uh, and essentially taking that burden away from the coach. Uh, you know, Emery has an advisory element in transfer proceedings, but they are not his decision. Sanyehi in theory, should have a broader overview. You know, he should be analysing Edu and his role as much as he is Emery's. Mm. And what's the relationship like, as far as you know? Apparently, it's good. I mean, you know, Emery... uh, Sorry, not Emery. Edu uh, came in and he 
has had to sort of win round people who were there before him. You know, Emery's not someone he knew, especially. It's a very different situation to if it had been Monchi. Per Mertzaka's not someone he knew, especially. But, you know, he went in and uh, Per presented to Edu on his ideas for the academy and Edu was apparently receptive. So that seems to be going well. They seem to be working in tandem on that front. As for Emery and Edu, I think one of the things that will be really interesting is part of Edu's remit is to kind of preserve the footballing identity of Arsenal uh, and, you know, examine things like the style of play of the team. And I felt that the, some, of, some of the transfer business was instructive in that way. They took away players in Iwobi and Mkhitaryan who had become quite important to Emery and brought in people like Pepe or youngsters like Saka Martinelli who were a little bit more dynamic. And I felt that that was a case of the executive sort of trying to shape the direction of the mm. team. I think, you know, Edu's only been there really six months or so at this point. So I only think it's around now that he'll be kind of making that review, making that assessment. Apparently the club have a planned review of Emery's management at the end of the year, and that end of the season, sorry. And that's where this idea that they might wait until then comes from, you know, this sense that we're going to try and review this on an annual basis as they did at the end of last season and take our judgment there. But I think Arsenal fans are putting a lot of uh, hope in Edu because there's someone that they feel does understand the club was part of the Invincibles you know gets those values and I think they want him to kind of preserve them and see that this Emery football that we're playing doesn't live up to those expectations Do you think that having uh, former footballers in these sorts of roles is a good idea because throughout their careers <clears throat> they will have learned how important teamwork is. I mean, I know that that happens to uh, most people if you work in an office environment <laughs> or with other people. But I would have thought, given how important it is to play as a team at the top level of football, um, being more of a, of, a, of a sort of team worker, that, that, might, that might carry on into a future role. Yeah, but I, I think that's a personality. Or clutching at straws. I know, I don't think it's clutching at straws. Just, I think it depends on the personality. Like, you have to be quite conciliatory. Um, I think the most important thing in these people is that they're qualified, not where they've come from. Yeah. I think kind of, um, I think there's a sort of a bit, bit of a misconception about um, what it is to be a head of football, a director of football, a technical director, and what that job description actually involves. So, like in any other in any other situation, if you were to fill an equivalent role in a uh, FTSE 100 company, for instance, you would have a pretty clear list of qualifications and a fairly lengthy. Um, detailing of, of experience at similar companies or within similar industries. Mm. Um, and contained within that is an ability to merge departments, to uh, settle disputes. Manage. To manage, yeah. So I don't think it's got anything to do with football. A footballer can become that person. Mm. But what can't happen is you can't just go, right, well, you know, the, the Man United example, uh, that guy played for Alex Ferguson, he should be technical director. That's mm. nonsense, mm. I'm afraid. That, mm. that needs to stop. Okay. Um, James, can you also give me a sort of brief, if there are non-Arsenal supporting listeners still listening to this podcast yes. right now, would you be able to give us a kind of brief breakdown of the ownership situation? And I know that's something which will be familiar to, to, to most Arsenal supporters, but we like to try and cover those things on these sorts of podcasts. So Yeah, of course. Well, essentially, Stan Kroenke and, and KSE, Kroenke's Sports Enterprises or Sports Entertainment, I forget exactly what it stands for own Arsenal outright mm -hmm. at this point so Alicia Usmanov did have his sort of 30% uh, 
stake that has been bought out. Uh, and with that, there was a compulsory purchase on all minority shareholders. So, for example, the Arsenal Supporters Trust, who held a very small percentage of the club, but were effectively representatives of the fans uh, in AGMs and things like that. They have now been bought out. So it's all it's all cronkies. Uh, they have a portfolio of sporting interests, predominantly in American sports. He's the Tampa Bay guy, right? Uh, it's Colorado. Oh, the Colorado Rapids. Yeah, is so it? he owns, Cronky uh, owns the uh, Los Angeles Rams. The LA oh, Rams okay. is his big project. The Glazer family of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Right, okay, yeah. okay. And uh, he, he was the guy responsible for moving one of the franchises to a different state, right? The Rams That's from the Rams. St. Louis to right. Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, with I mean, significant economic success, but I think he's got a stadium. He's got a, he's still paying for, um, which some feel might impact upon Arsenal in some way. I mean, you know, they are a business enterprise. They do not sell. They've never sold any of their sports franchises, as they would term them. Um, they hold them for investment value, basically. And and Josh Kroenke is Stan's son and is effectively the guy who's more involved in the day-to-day running of Arsenal. He has spent time at Arsenal this season. He has been at games this season. He was instrumental in the decision to remove Arsene Wenger. He spent a three-month period in London kind of making an assessment on what he felt, and that contributed directly to Wenger going. So a lot of hope is kind of placed in Josh as sort of the idea that he might be somehow more, sorry, that he might be somehow more engaged than Stan. Who was sort of? I love this. Josh and Stan makes them sound so kind of uh, innocuous, doesn't it? I know. Well, I mean, Stan. You know, Stan was known as Silent Stan for a long time because mm. he basically never commented. He would turn up at Arsenal GMs, AGMs, yeah. and not say anything. He's not a popular guy with American sports fans for the no. most part. He's got a great mustache, though. He has got one hell of a mustache. Really though. impressive mustache. And I will say, Josh, very tall. Right. So they've got that going for yeah, them. Well, that's important. But, Strong gene pool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it has changed things at Arsenal. And very tall. The, the suggestion uh, in the summer was maybe the reason that some of the spending shackles slightly came off was because at this point, because they own the club outright, you know, it's not as if, if it improves investment, it's somehow improving Alisher Usmanov's share. You know, that's something the club were quite, quite keen to stress. I mean, when you look at what they spent and how much they actually spent this year, it's not quite as impressive as it seems. I mean, I'm not complaining as an Arsenal fan, but uh, I think, you know, when you look at Arsenal's situation and the frustration of the supporters, I do think a lot of that stems directly from an ownership who who don't seem especially ambitious. Let's put it like that. Mm, okay. And I suppose finally, to kind of wrap things up, uh, you mentioned before that the strategy for Emery could potentially be along the lines of waiting till the end of the season. Maybe mm. there's a, a better opportunity to replace him at that point. What are your expectations for the rest of the season for Arsenal? And indeed beyond that, if you know we can take that hypothetical a little bit further, we had a little game before where we you know thought of some names, none of them really seemed to fit. Do you have any ideas also? There's about three questions in there, sorry. Oh, names for as managers. Yeah. Well, in, I think in the case that you 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 would choose for Emery to, to leave, obviously results dependent. Well, in the very short term, if Emery leaves before the end of the season, I, I really do think that the likelihood is that Freddie Jumberg would take over as a 
caretaker mm-hmm. um, simply because he's sort of the one member of the first team staff who wouldn't go with Emery because right. he was not really placed in there by Emery. Are you worried about the day, the kind of Di Matteo Solskjaer danger of him doing incredibly well for 10 games and then being given a five-year contract? I am. Yeah, I am. Okay. I, just, I, checking. <laughs> just checking. I'm also worried about, you know, the possibility that he just might not do that well. I mean, you know, yeah. he, he is inexperienced, but everyone who has worked with him, I have to say, speaks incredibly highly of him. So, you know, I, I, I'd love to see him succeed, but who knows? Looking beyond that at the rest of the season, like I say, sort of purely statistically, top four feels like a slim chance at the moment. We would have to go on a, a run that we do not look capable of, frankly, in terms of what we'd require in the remaining fixtures. So I think actually having sort of dismissed it in the first half of the campaign and it been viewed primarily as a distraction, the Europa League becomes absolutely essential for Arsenal because oh, it's a terrible place to be I know <laughs> can you imagine putting all your eggs in the I Europa basket the Europa League I, and I will hate the Europa League conference even more <laughs> oh it's just awful but I think I think that that is kind of what Arsenal's season will hang on yeah. and I take no yeah. pride or pleasure in saying that and it wouldn't surprise me if we reach a point if Emery does stay in charge in the spring where you're looking at weaker teams in the Premier League and stronger teams in Europa. And yeah. there's a bit of a flip there because if top four's gone by that point, that will be our chance of getting back into the Champions League, which is imperative mm. for a lot of reasons. You know, we've been in the Europa League for three seasons now. If we stay in there mm. much longer, you know, we can't kid ourselves that we're a Champions League team in the Europa League. We will be mm. a Europa League team. And I'm struggling yeah. to say that. It's unpleasant. I tell you what, making uh, the prize for winning the Europa League enter into the Champions League, it really has worked quite well, hasn't it? I mean, it's really changed things over the last few years. Let's look further ahead, though. And it's total blue sky stuff Mm. now. It's not, you know, there's no rationality in this, but the gap between where Arsenal are currently and where Manchester City and Liverpool are, or indeed whichever teams fill those slots Mm. in three, four, five years' time, how do you close that and do you see that being a possibility in the next few years? Because presumably when you lose Wenger, who consistently enabled, uh, apart from the last couple of years, consistently enabled Arsenal to finish in the top four, mm. the aim for anyone coming in to replace him is to challenge for the title. Presumably at a club of Arsenal's size, that's always the aim. So yeah. how, how do you realise that aim? Is it even possible? It's really difficult. I think Arsenal fans look at Liverpool as the model because, you know, they haven't spent, you know, quite the same way as Manchester City uh, and and they feel like that's something the club could emulate. But when you look at it, you know, Klopp, how long has he been there? Four or five years. Mm -hmm. And I know they were 12th when they took over, but I do think that there had been signs before that that they were going to be in contention. They went close to winning the league under Rodgers, although it had sort of fallen apart. You know, that something had been building there for some time. So actually it's an even longer process than it looks. Uh, Can Arsenal do it? Yes, they can. What do they need to do? They need fantastic recruitment. They need a brilliant coach. Uh, I think that, you know, they've got a fantastic academy. And they've got a decent squad. I think it's a better squad sometimes than it looks. And the young players are really promising. Yeah. But yeah, they, they need uh, they need fantastic recruitment and a fantastic coach. And it will even then you're looking at a four or five year turnaround, aren't you? We'll take Guardiola and Klopp out of the equation. Mm. Who, who who is there that you feel could come like, in and do that job? I think there's a difference there. Like you take you take Guardiola out of the city equation. Okay, it weakens them. 
you take Klopp out of the Liverpool situation and the whole thing doesn't fall apart but regresses pretty dramatically. Mm. So I would I would almost I know I know what the table looks like at the moment. I know what Liverpool are at the moment, but I think you have to treat Manchester City as a separate entity. So really over kind of a, a ten year period, I think you you probably treat Chelsea, Arsenal, probably Spurs, depending on, you know, what the stadium does for their finances, almost as a kind of rotating cast of, of teams finishing in that sort of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth position. Manchester United eventually Manchester United spends so much money every year that eventually they're going to get it right almost through the law of averages. That's just, it's unimaginable they won't. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I Arsenal, I, it pains me to say this a little bit, I, I think there's more to be optimistic about than people think there is. Mm. I really like, James mentioned it, I really like some of these young players. Like Martinelli, I think, is a super player and a really good bit of recruitment. Um, Saliba, I, I, I don't know much about, but people who do know a lot about speak really, really highly of him. Joe Willock. Right, Joe Willock's a good player. You've you've got these. Um, so within that, you've got right left back has been sorted. Tierney's at the club now. He's a good player. Um, hopefully, Bellerin recovers from his injury mm-hmm. and becomes a long term solution at fullback because he's an excellent player. Um, and so you've got Saliba in central as a central defence. That's another problem shifted. And then, so I, I look at it from areas. There are questions that need answering. So I don't think you know Emery is going to take Arsenal anywhere. Um, he is a Europa League manager um, managing what at the moment is turning into a Europa League club. I think James mm. is absolutely right about that. Um, you need someone better, just better, not different, just actually better at, at implementing systems. Because I think sort of you can have an ideology, but if you're unable to transfer into into a club, it doesn't really matter what the ideology is or what your approach is, and that's that's his problem. Who's the, who's the shortlist though? Because I'm really struggling to, no, think, I, to think of coaches that not only are available, forget about their availability. I'm I, now struggling to think of coaches who, who are clearly definitely better than Una Ayanari. So I, I think you have to be creative. I think you have to look at someone like Marco Rose, for instance. I think that would right. be very interesting. Uh, that's not immediately possible because he's only taken a new job this year. Um, I don't I don't know when the next generation, where the next generation of yeah. ideologues is coming from. So obviously we had this kind of um, duolo- uh, sort of Mourinho Guardiola duopoly. Um, you can factor in sort of your 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 Klops and your Pochettinos. Neither of those is going to go and manage Arsenal anytime yeah. soon. So you have to look at a new generation and look at things within over a five year time period. I think as James said, actually, I mean, so you at some point somebody has to do some really good recruitment, not just with players but with a coach, mm, and yeah. that's going to be the key to it. It's really tough. I mean, really hard. When when I am asked for names, I mean. It, it's always difficult. I actually don't think that uh, Arsenal could get him now, but one of the name that was closest to getting the job before Emery was Mikel Arteta. Um, And I do think that his experience working with Pep and how highly Pep speaks of him is really promising. However, he'll go to City. I feel like he'll be the City manager. Yeah, Yeah. as and when Guardiola leaves, which will be this year or next year. Uh, So I think Arsenal may have missed the boat there, sadly. All right, well, that's the end. So that's it. So I guess no manager, really. Managed, managed by Twitter poll. Yeah. You know, that's, that <laughs> is a natural next step for Arsenal. I guess it'll be troops. There, yeah. there is one of those troops. clubs out there, isn't there? There's, it's, it's a YouTube football club. I think it's a real club that there, there's a, a selection based um, consensus of fans. To and be an like, you know, you know, it's the, a thing. It's a real it's thing. It's the extension of the, you know, those mobile games that you find, which are like, you know, top 11 and that yeah. kind of stuff. There's, it, it's begging to be white labelled into like a real life football club version of that. That is, it is a thing. Awesome. I'm trying yeah. to remember the name of it. Yeah. It's, it they play in an experiment a Sunday league somewhere. There, there, there was a German one, right? I think 
because Ian McIntosh went over there to, was a um, German one yes that's a, also um, there but there's one in the UK too one. there was one uh, do you remember was it Ebbsfleet in this country who were bought by a consortium of I think it was Ebbsfleet, so forgive me right. if that's wrong. This was like about 10 years ago, and you could vote on things like signings. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was who it should did, leave. Believe it or not, it did not work. No, okay. no, no if we, we had that, I suppose, like Tom Carroll would, be, would still be club captain now. <laughs> you know, sort of like, oh my God, Carl yeah. Norton. Maybe they have instituted it at Man United. That would make some sense, wouldn't it? Wow, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Uh, James, thanks so much, man. Pleasure. Really appreciate you coming in. And as I said earlier, do please check out James's writing and other writers' work at The Athletic. Seb, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Joey. And we'll be back next week with something else. Thank you. Goodbye. way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC.